Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. So Wednesday, we had all of the overrides in the North Carolina General Assembly, um, two of them related to transgender uh, children. Right, One bill uh, protected women's sports from males wanting to play uh, and saying that, you know, I'm a girl. I should be able to, you know, win all of your trophies. And uh, the other uh, was um, the prevention or the prohibition, I should say, of surgeries on minors cross-sex hormones, and puberty blockers uh, among minors. And uh, I did not get to this yesterday because we took a call from Mike, uh, who, by the way, that's Mike Daisley. He is the former attorney for the Mecklenburg County Democratic Party. Um, and I get along with Mike just fine. We have discussions and debates and such and uh, you know, had him on for like almost half an hour yesterday to debate this. But that's why I never got to this, uh, this piece. And it's a really important piece especially in light of what we saw with the overrides and particularly with the reaction from people on the left. And what is a, a, what is you always need to keep in mind that for a lot of people on the left, they don't know. Fill in the blank. (laughs) They, they are not aware of a lot of, the research, they're not aware of the arguments, the counter arguments, because they don't ever have to be. This is why I say unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. And for folks generally in this audience, in all conservative media, we generally, audience members of conservative media, have to know, or just by osmosis and just being in the society at large, we hear the arguments from the left. We hear them all the time. We see them in the newspapers. We hear them on, uh, you know, the TV reports and stuff. It's all over the place. You hear it from people in your family. If you've got anybody under the age of 30, you're hearing it parroted from them. Anybody that's in college, right? So you hear all of these arguments. They never hear this stuff. Because this stuff is never covered on their preferred media sources. So there is a website called Tablet Magazine. I think there might be a magazine too, but tabletmag.com. This piece is from February and it talks about a top expert on pediatric gender medicine from Finland. This individual is also the chief psychiatrist at one of the two government approved pediatric gender clinics in Finland. Her name is Dr. Something. It's a Finnish name. It's really, oh my goodness. It's like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. There's like multiple, this, like it's R-I-I-T-T-A-K-E-R-T-T-U. Ritakertu? Ritakertu? Last name, Kaltiala. So I'm going to call her, just, I'm going to call her Doc, okay? <laughs> so uh, she is what you might call an expert psychiatrist and pediatric gender doctor, right? Knows gender medicine. Okay. 
Finland was one of the first countries to adopt what's called the Dutch Protocol. It's where you buy each other dinner. I'm kidding. Well, no, I mean, that's called going Dutch. But the Dutch Protocol for Pediatric Gender Medicine, which prescribes in certain restricted cases the use of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, right, in order to treat adolescent gender dysphoria. By 2015, so now almost, what, 10 years ago now, this is, I guess, eight years ago, Finnish gender specialists, including doctor, or doc, including her, started to notice that the patients did not match the profile of those treated in the Netherlands, which is where Dutch is, right? It's the place where the Dutch come from. So the Dutch protocol out of the Netherlands, they're treating people, they're treating patients, and they have a protocol. Finland adopted it, but now they're starting to see patients that don't match that protocol or match that uh, patient profile. And therefore, they are not meeting the Dutch protocol's strict eligibility requirements for drug treatments. Due to the extremely high rate at which children with gender issues come to terms with their bodies or desist by adulthood, the Dutch protocol requires patients to have gender dysphoria that begins before puberty and intensifies in adolescence. That's what the protocol requires. It also requires that the patients have no serious co-occurring mental health problems. So it's the only thing you got going on up there in the brain. That's it. Gender dysphoria, it starts when you're young, before adolescence. It gets worse when you're in adolescence. It's the only mental health issue you're dealing with. And then you got to undergo at least six months of psychotherapy and have the support of your family. And that's just to get the hormone treatments. That's the Dutch protocol. Within a few years of Finland adopting the Dutch protocol in 2011, Finnish researchers noticed a sharp rise in the number of patients referred for services. Hmm, interesting. All of a sudden, we're seeing this increase in the number of people wanting to trans. Most of these patients were teenage girls with no history of dysphoria in childhood. Huh. Well, that would make them ineligible for the Dutch protocol then, right? Because you got to have it before adolescence, and then it has to get worse when you're a teenager in your later years, and you got to have no co-occurring mental health issues, right? Oh, also, the patients that the doctors in Finland were seeing, 68% had a history of severe psychopathology, prior to the emergence of their gender-related distress. Hmm. Okay, so strike two on that. Why are we seeing all of these patients showing up and they're not meeting the Dutch protocol? During the same time period, the United Kingdom's largest pediatric gender clinic, the Tavistock Center, they witnessed a 3,300% surge in patient referrals over a nine-year period from 09 to 18. Most of the new patients, females. 
female patients, actually, their numbers rose by 4,400%. This is why when I was talking to Mike yesterday, I kept asking, do you think there is at least an element of contagion, an element of social contagion going on with this issue? This is the element. Also, the Tavistock Center in UK, their patient profile, yeah, their patients also had a history of serious psychological problems and no gender dysphoria prior to adolescence. Similar trends were being observed in other countries with pediatric gender clinics, including America. In 2018, the American physician researcher, her name Lisa Littman, published a study suggesting that teenage girls with high rates of mental health problems were suddenly declaring a transgender identity often in friend groups and after prolonged exposure to social media. Why? They don't know. The researchers do not know. This lack of research into this area and lingering doubts about the Dutch protocol itself, which the only attempt to replicate it in the UK failed, it led authorities in Finland and Sweden and the UK to conduct systematic reviews of evidence for the benefits and the risks of hormonal interventions. Systematic reviews are the highest level of evidence analysis in evidence-based medicine. Now, maybe you're not interested in evidence-based medicine. But what they found, the three European countries that did the reviews independently came to the same conclusion. Due to their severe methodological limitations, studies cited in support of hormonal interventions for adolescents are of, quote, very low certainty. They're not sure. There's your headline. They're not sure. Don't know. My work, probably not. Very low certainty. For health authorities in these countries, this meant that the studies were too unreliable to justify the risks and uncertainties of gender-affirming care, quote-unquote. So, Sweden, Finland, and England have since passed severe restrictions on access to hormones, although these countries now allow hormones in a very carefully selected cohort of patients who fulfill the criteria of the Dutch protocol They do so against the findings of their own systematic reviews. That's because the systematic reviews found that the Dutch study on which the Dutch protocol is based also provides very low certainty evidence. So this protocol that everybody's been following that's supposedly really stringent, they have a very low certainty of evidence. Finland's Council for Choices in Healthcare recognizes medical uh, medical transition for minors as, quote, an experimental practice. See, this is not some right-wing talking point. Just because people in media don't want to look at this or aren't even aware that there is a dissenting view on this, and it's not even a dissenting view. This is actually the norm in Europe. We are behind them. All right, more on that in a minute. First, let me tell you, the Heritage Life Skills event was fantastic. Every year, Bill and Jan Sturette organize the event to help people get educated on how to be prepared for anything. The Sturettes own Carolina Readiness Supply, 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials you'll need for any kind of emergency. 
food, water purifiers, lighting, tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies, because being prepared is just smart. The Heritage Life Skills event brings educators and vendors from all over to help people do just that. I was honored to be able to be a small part of it. And whether you're an experienced prepper, have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between, Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Alrighty, so more from this tablet. And by the way, the uh, website is Tablet Mag. Headline, Finland takes another look at youth gender medicine. And so all of the arguments that we heard yesterday on this program, but they occurred Wednesday night during the General Assembly debate, and you've heard all of the same arguments, these same, they're not even arguments, they're just, they're, they're platitudes, they're slogans, emotional appeals. They're not rooted in actual science. They're not rooted in evidence-based medicine. And unfortunately, like this is why, I, I say this all the time, there's a reason it's called the practice of medicine, not the perfect Okay, <laughs> it's not, and I'm not, I've always advised on everything COVID related, talk to your own doctor, right? Do your own research. There are doctors that, a lot of, there are doctors that believe themselves to be infallible. I call it a God complex. It's pretty prevalent. <laughs> so, right, but there are some that are fantastic. A lot of them are. Nurses are great. Some are not. Just like everybody else, every, any other profession, Right. Oh, no, Pete, all nurses are awesome. I don't know about that. You hear about the nurse that's, that was killing babies in the hospital? You know, that, that stuff, hap- that, that happens too. So, and that was recent. I don't know what country. It may have been America. I forget where. It was like a neonatal unit. She killed like a dozen babies. Tried to kill even more. It's awful. Um, so this, this uh, Tablet Magazine article talking about Finland's experience with what's called the Dutch protocol and what Finland um, and uh, Sweden and the UK, they all realized after they did systematic reviews of the evidence and they found, Oh, um, these hormonal interventions for adolescents are of quote, very low certainty. And so they put restrictions on the access to hormones. And then they went and looked at the Dutch protocol protocol and that also has very low certainty so everybody's been using this model that has very low certainty the doctor who is the expert uh that is highlighted in this piece kaltiala dr kaltiala she emphasized that it's important to accept children as they are but this means neither pressuring a child to conform to behaviors traditionally associated with the child's sex, nor negating the body by confirming that the child's gender self-identification is real. In either case, the child gets a message that there's something wrong with him or her. This is the flip side of this argument that you hear that's never spoken, never understood, never actually, uh, uh, never addressed or articulated, but the people who are pushing that narrative that, oh, born in the wrong body, you're telling the kid that there's something wrong with them, and there isn't anything wrong with them. They're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. The vet, I mean, like 99% of these kids are going to be fine. But you're telling them there's something wrong with them, and there isn't. Evidence from a combined 12 studies 
to uh, demonstrate that when, uh, yeah, 12 studies to date demonstrate that when children with cross-gender or gender-variant behavior are left to develop naturally, the vast majority, four out of five, come to terms with their bodies and learn to accept their sex. And when they are socially transitioned, a.k.a. pronoun adoption, new names, wearing different clothing, that sort of thing, when they are socially transitioned, virtually none of them, none of them come to terms with their bodies and accept their sex. You are not just physically harming children. There's an emotional and a mental health component to this that you are also harming them. I, I, I'm sorry if this is jarring for people that thought they were doing the right thing. You were lied to. That's my assessment so far. I've been covering this stuff now for a while. Reading way too much of the research on this stuff than I ever cared to. But it's really important. Most children, the fact that most children will desist from cross-sex identification... That does not necessarily mean that they're no longer going to experience any kind of distress associated with their bodies. Rather, it means that even if that distress lingers, it's not going to prevent them from becoming reasonably well-adjusted and living a good life. Right? The notion that... Nobody should ever have to experience any discomfort associated with male or female embodiment, including during puberty. Right? This is the utopian promise fueling a lot of the gender transition industry. This is the piece written by Leor Sapir at Tablet Magazine. And this nails it. That sentence nails it. This idea that nobody is ever going to or should ever have any kind of discomfort, particularly during puberty. Right? That is what is fueling this. That utopia is available to you. Oh, you feel uncomfortable in your own skin as a teenager going through puberty? Oh, that's okay. Here we go. We have a solution for you. Just watch all these TikTok videos. Get all of your affirmation from these these random people. There's been a growing movement among gender activists to frame puberty as something that the autonomous disembodied self should have the right to choose. Have you heard this? The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH. You see the name, the organization quoted, although like some of the, uh, the leaders of WPATH from just like five years ago, they're all now on the outs because the, 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 the politics have changed so dramatically, so quickly. WPATH says, quote, neither puberty suppression nor allowing puberty to occur is a neutral act. So they're, they're setting up a standard of intervention. You get to choose when you go through puberty. And, you know, if you want to delay it a couple years, no harm, no foul. And as I went over yesterday, not true. Not true. Brain development, permanently retarded. And I don't say that as like an insult. I'm saying it's delayed. It's hampered. 
And I'm not saying that people will be uh, uh, brain damaged. It's just that the normal development with the, the chemicals and hormones and everything else that are, it's going on in the brain, it gets stunted. Unlike progressive elites in the U.S. who seem to regard social affirmation of transgender children as little more than an act of kindness, Dr. Kaltiala sees it as a powerful intervention in a young person's psychosocial development with potential for iatrogenic harm. Iatrogenic harm means harm caused by the treatment itself. Gender self-identification in youth is not a mere clerical formality. In the doctor's words, quote, it's a message saying that this is the right path for you. That's what we're telling kids. Kaltiala concurs with the uh, the UK health system, which recently noted that social transition, using a kid's preferred noun or uh, uh, name and pronouns, that that's not a neutral act. When you do that, that is not neutral. It can solidify what is otherwise likely to be a passing phase. You're creating a more permanent state of mind. You're creating an identity. And you put the minor, you put the child on a path to drugs and surgeries. The NHS in Britain is now warning of the risks of social transition in children and recommends it only for adolescents who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and have provided informed consent. As for adolescents, Dr. Kaltiala distinguishes between the minority whose dysphoria began in childhood and then intensified during puberty from those whose dysphoria first appeared after the onset of puberty. These are different patient profiles for the adolescents the ones who would qualify under the dutch study she says gender identity discordance where you're not in where your body's basically in conflict right that that may be more stable but it should be emphasized that there are no controlled longitudinal studies that confirm this and some experts believe that medicalizing teenagers even in the cohort that checks all the boxes for the Dutch protocol, it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. These are gender experts. These are psychiatrists and doctors that have been working in the field for a decade over in Finland. These are researchers out of Sweden and Finland and UK, and they're like, whoa. Causation, not correlation. Correlation, not causation. Like, this is not, this is not good practice, guys. You're on the wrong side of this. Socially transitioning kids creates the self-fulfilling prophecy. You are putting those kids on a pathway. Advocates of the American affirmative approach tend to ignore the broader trends of mental health collapse among teenagers over the past few decades. A deeply concerning trend that seems to affect girls in particular and is linked to social media use. They have always been more susceptible to social contagion. Females, particularly young girls, always. Peer pressure is a very powerful thing to begin with at any age, let alone when you're in school, let alone when you got a supercomputer in your hand and all of your peers are following you 24-7 in everything you do, everywhere you go, everything you say. It's all, 
you know, opportunities for affirmation or bullying. And there is some capital that you can collect here. You can. If you're, you know, you're the most unpopular kid in the class, no one likes you, you're getting bullied, you have, you're self-conscious about yourself, you're going through puberty, life is very difficult. But now you're trans. And all of a sudden, oh, now you're special. You know, I've heard from, I've heard from parents and people who have told me that about individuals in their own lives, and they have seen this firsthand. Let me go over here to the phones again. Mary on. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the program. Hey, Pete. Love hey. your show. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. I just wanted to tell you, I agree with everything you're saying. Absolutely. The thing is, is that it's all about the power and the control of these kids. And this is what these these adults, these evil people who think that it's okay um, to confuse these kids with their sexual identity. And it's about controlling them and pulling them away from their parents so mm-hmm. that they can further control them and put them on the government tab as usual. So, so Abigail Schreier wrote about that uh, in her uh, in her research uh I forget the name of the book now, but she she talked there are different cohorts. And and what you're talking about is what she connects to the activists in that when these kids trans, virtually 100 percent of them become activists. And that's the that's where there is an interest among a lot of leftists and statists. And I'm losing you because of where I am, I think. So I'll Uh, hang up. But thank you. All right, Mary, appreciate the call. Um, Probably going through one of those tunnels in the Charlotte area. Um, oh, it's, this is what Schreier notes in the research. I'll pull the, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember the name of the book, the book that she wrote, but she noted that this, this connection to the activists, that when you create this population, now they're part of your movement. I know it sounds like the old, oh, they're recruiting people argument. You know, I know what it sounds like. But look around. <laughs> and I'm, I'm giving you the evidence. I'm giving you research. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's military surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Let me go get John on the phone. Hello, John. Welcome to the program. How are you? Hello. Can you hear me still? I can hear you just fine. What's going on? Um, Yeah, so I was, I came across, I'm I'm a doctor. And I came across an article that was talking about transgender and autism. So I actually did a study a little bit deeper into uh, on PubMed, mm-hmm. and I just put in those two terms, autism and transgender. There were 98 studies that popped up. Some were saying, oh, there's nothing to it, but the majority were really saying there is a large connection between those two. Mm-hmm. So, so we're the- looking at autism. You know, there's a lot of things going on, uh, hormone dysregulation. And, you know, 
honestly, it comes down to really what kind of foods we're eating. And that's kind of one of the things I'm thinking about here. I don't have a direct correlation, but there's a lot of estrogens in our foods with hormone rep- um, in the foods. Like, for example, chicken, to give growth hormones, which is pure estrogen. We eat that. It comes in, we eat the chicken, it comes, we get extra estrogen. That could cause all kinds of hormonal dysregulation right there and cause more emotional issues. So there was so a tw- part of it. Yeah, there's a 2019 study on patients at uh, the Tavistock uh, Clinic, UK's largest pediatric gender clinic, and it found 48% were in the autism range. 48%. Well, I saw one study that was saying up to 90%. Yeah. You know, that was one study. No, I wouldn't, so, I, I would not doubt it. John, yeah, I yeah. appreciate it. Look, I, I think uh, I think diet's a huge part of it as well. I appreciate the call. Um, I want to finish this. Uh, oh, I still have to pay the uh, pay off that. Uh, it's Abigail Schreier's book called "Irreversible Damage." It's the name of the book. Irreversible damage. Uh, and uh, on Twitter, it's all a distraction. She says uh, Schreier also says hormones for trans is the new cash cow for Planned Parenthood because it gives them a lifetime customer. You are correct. Um, back to the tablet magazine piece, why so many minors are rejecting their sex somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10%. Many young people grab the idea available in the media and social media that their problems are caused by gender identity and will be solved if others start to see them as members of the other sex. But that does not work. According to Dr. Kaltiala, a balance of mind does not come from making others do and see what you want. This is why there's some narcissistic behavior involved in all of this, too. If not just your dignity as a human, but your very existence depends upon others agreeing with your self-characterization, you are destined for chronic existential dread. This is not a recipe for authenticity, let alone happiness. The piece goes on later to say that the popular transition or suicide narrative used by activists to push back against state reform efforts is, quote, purposeful disinformation and spreading it is irresponsible. Much of the public... And again, this is from a gender pediatrician and psychiatrist that has been doing this for 10 years. Much of the public confusion about the suicide issue stems from a simple correlation causation fallacy. While there is evidence that teenagers who identify as trans have elevated rates of suicide or suicidality, a behavior it's often involves thoughts of suicide or non-fatal self-harming gestures, not to be confused with actual suicide or serious attempts. But there's no evidence that the elevated risk is because of unaffirmed gender identity or that social and medical transition will reduce that risk of self-harm. Studies purporting to find that hormones reduce suicidality are typically designed in such a way that valid Inferences about cause and effect cannot be drawn. Consider that roughly three-quarters of teenagers who present to gender clinics these days have pre-existing mental health conditions like depression and autism, which are themselves risk factors for suicidality. It's probably more accurate to say that teenagers with suicidal inclinations are more likely to gravitate towards a trans identity, not the other way around. Thankfully, suicide is extremely rare. Even among trans youth, there was no epidemic of suicides among gender distressed teenagers before gender affirming hormones became available about 15 years ago. I've said this before. Where do where has been this massive decline in suicides? We should we should see. Right. If affirmation is preventing suicides, why do we see an increase 
in the suicides among the young. A study from the UK found that the suicide rate among minors seeking medical transition over a 10-year period was 0.03%, nothing close to the 41% risk commonly cited by American activists. In a large Swedish study, suicide mortality had clearly increased among adults who had received gender reassignment treatments. For Dr. Kaltiala, quote, it is not justified to tell the parents of young people identifying as transgender that a young person is at risk of suicide without medical treatments and that the danger can be alleviated with gender reassignment. It is not justified. Why the obsessive emphasis on the suicide issue? Well, the obvious reason is that if suicide is the expected outcome, then any risk from hormones or surgeries is probably worth it. Right? Because what's the alternative? Death. Okay, I guess I got to go along with this. It prevents patients, clinicians, parents, right? It prevents them from weighing pros and cons. Because on the other side of the ledger is always death. The Finnish Pediatric Society which is the counterpart of the American Academy of Pediatrics. They have come out against governmental support for gender self-identification in minors in a statement to the Finnish parliament. Likewise, the Finnish Medical Association wrote, quote, the decision to limit legal gender recognition to adults is a good one. These statements run directly counter to the American Academy of Pediatrics policy since 2018, which draws on a highly distorted interpretation of the available research, recommends immediate and uncritical affirmation of minors regardless of age. See, this is the appeal to authority, the appeal to the experts, appeal to credentials. And if you didn't learn anything during COVID, I don't know what the hell to tell you, folks. I really don't. What the European countries have discovered and what what they are now tacking towards is the correct path, in my opinion. But what do I know? I've just been, you know, reading up on this stuff for years and years and years. And the appeal to credentials, oh, like we heard yesterday, oh, well, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I guess they don't know what they're talking about. Well, then what, what, what then do you make of the Finnish Pediatric Society? They're farther down the road. They've been studying it longer. Can I appeal to their credentials? Thank <laughs> you.